Five terrifying and creepy small town murder mysteries. When you think of small towns, you might be reminded of friendly neighbors, open spaces, and mom and pop stores. But the reality is, even in small communities, sometimes evil people find their way into them. These are five terrifying and creepy small town murder mysteries. Number five, the Coons family, Athens, Wisconsin. Athens is a village in Marathon County, Wisconsin, and back in 1990, around 950 people called it home with just 200 families living within its borders. One of them was the Coons family. They were a reclusive bunch that consisted of four elderly siblings, 82-year-old Irene, 76-year-old Clarence, 72-year-old Marie, and Helen, who was 70. Living with them were Helen's two adult sons, Kenneth and Randy. They lived in an old, dilapidated farmhouse, which was barely fit to live in, as it had no running water or indoor plumbing. The only heat source was a single wood-burning stove that they also used for cooking. To make matters worse, all the Coonses were hoarders, Trash was littered in every corner of every room inside this rotting estate. Despite the unkempt state of the place, the family did own a few modern conveniences like a television and VCR. In the ensuing investigation, police found an enormous library of pornographic films, which they believe the Coonses watched together as a family. Although it was never proven, townsfolk believed that the family may have been involved in some incestuous relationships with one another. It was reported that Helen had slept in the same bed with her adult sons. The other three siblings, meanwhile, slept together in the living room. There were rumors that indicated Clarence could be the father of Helen's boys. On July 4, 1987, hours after the fireworks had ended, Kenneth headed home after a night out at the local pub. Once there, he discovered something horrifying, though. When he found his relatives, Irene, Marie, Clarence, and his brother Randy, all had been shot in the head execution style. Each one had been shot twice with a 22 caliber rifle, and Helen, his mother, was missing. The first suspect considered was, of course, Helen, who witnesses recalled had bought 22 caliber ammunition just a few weeks before the murders. And so for nine months, authorities searched for her, eventually finding her, but it was just her body, frozen in a creek not far from her home. She had been killed the same way as the rest of her clan. Chris Jacobs, a local man who knew the family through some past business dealings, was then looked into by authorities. They figured that he may have had a vendetta against them or was owed money and so he had motive. But he denied any wrongdoing and revealed that despite the family's squalid state of living, they actually had a lot of cash just lying around their house. Sure enough, investigators were able to find plenty of cash under all the hoarded items and so Chris was acquitted of all murder charges. Later on, however, the state did charge him with Helen's kidnapping, which he was found guilty of and is currently serving a 31-year prison sentence because of it. Helen's murder 
and the fact that all the family's belongings remained intact only served to further complicate an already baffling murder mystery. And so, the Coons murders remain unsolved to this day. Number 4. Shaw Creek Killings, Aiken County, South Carolina In a span of six years between 1987 and 1993, four bodies were found in the woods of Aiken County. The first one was spotted on November 16, 1987 by a pair of hunters. As the two were about a mile away from Highway 191, they came across Shaw Creek and there is where they stumbled upon human skeletal remains. The individual was found lying face down and judging from the root and vegetation growth around it, the body had to have been there for several years. South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, also known as SLED, conducted a search of the area. They found nothing but an empty brass shell casing believed to have been fired from a shotgun. The coroner, meanwhile, was able to create some facial reconstructions on the victim, which was determined to be a woman, but her identity was never fully revealed. For filing purposes, she was referred to as the 1987 Aiken County Jane Doe. Four years later, a second body was found in the same forest near the now infamous creek. On March 22, 1991, loggers reported seeing the decomposing body abandoned on the ground. The identity of the deceased person remained unknown until 1999 when DNA testing and a series of forensic tests confirmed that it was in fact a woman named Jacqueline Council. Jackie, a mother of four, was last seen on November 10, 1987, dropping off her five-year-old child at school. Yet again, in 1992, the body of a young black woman was found 15 miles away from where the first two were discovered. This victim was found under similar circumstances, with no clothing on and near a body of water. It took authorities many years to verify the person as Ristine Durden, a 29-year-old woman who had gone missing from her home in Avera, Georgia, back in March of 89. Murder continued to haunt Aiken County when on January 25th of 93, another corpse was found near the vicinity of the first three dead bodies. Police, however, noticed something distinct with the fourth victim. It appears that she had been killed in another location and left to decompose in another place before eventually being left in Shaw Creek. Like the first one, this latest victim of a serial killer was only given the name 1993 Aiken County Jane Doe. Over the years, countless suspects have been brought in and questioned, but none of them have been convincing enough. Today, no one knows who was responsible for the Shaw Creek killings, and the murderer most likely remains free. Number 3. Jessica Chambers, Cortland, Mississippi 19-year-old Jessica Chambers had a great future in front of her. At home, her family always thought of her as someone who had a great sense of humor. She was a cheerleader with lots of friends, someone who could always brighten up a room. Which is exactly why the rural community of Cortland, Mississippi 
Jessica's hometown would never be the same after what happened to the bright young girl. On December 6, 2014, at around 6 p.m., while still in her pajamas, Jessica left her mother's house to run some errands. Cell phone records show that she went to nearby Batesville, a city in Panola County, Mississippi. No one knows for sure what she was doing there. About an hour and a half later, she drove back to Cortland. Short time after that, she was discovered by the side of the road next to her 2005 Kia Rio. First responders were answering the call about a fire that had broken out down on a dirt road. There they found her car, as well as Jessica, completely engulfed in flames. She was airlifted to a nearby hospital, barely clinging to life, but her body was so severely burned that she succumbed to her injuries a short time later. The responders who attended to her at the crime scene told police they heard the victim crying out, telling them that Eric or Derek attacked her and set her on fire. A huge roll call was made on everyone from the area with those names, but they were all ruled out as suspects. Her boyfriend at the time was also questioned, but got off the hook considering that he was in prison at the time. The case went cold for a couple of years, but in 2016, a man named Quentin Tellis was indicted on a capital murder charge in Jessica's death. Prior to this, he was charged for the murder of another woman whose credit cards he was caught using after her death. Chambers and Tellis had known each other only for a few weeks and allegedly had some sort of a relationship. He also happened to be the last person who texted the victim before her death, and it's known that the two were together until at least 7.30pm on the evening in question. The problem was, though, there was no physical evidence connecting him to the actual crime. Their correspondence revealed that the man had repeatedly asked Chambers to have sex with him, to which she refused. Prosecutors believe that, out of frustration, he rendered the victim unconscious, then ran to pick up gasoline and returned to the scene where he set Chambers on fire. In 2017, Tellus went on trial, but some confusion with the jurors occurred, forcing the court to declare a mistrial. A year later, a new trial was set in a different county, but again, a mistrial was declared. Prosecutors are now deciding whether to put the accused on trial for a third time. He is currently in custody at the Ochita Correctional Center in Louisiana. Officially, authorities have yet to identify the one responsible for the crime. Number 2. The Frankfurt Slasher, Frankfurt, Pennsylvania Frankfurt, a little neighborhood in the northeast section of Philadelphia, came to the forefront when it became the hunting ground for the killer known as the Frankfurt Slasher. This serial killer, or killers, terrorized the town, stalking victims between 1985 and 1990. There were a total of nine victims, all white women who frequented the bars situated along three specific blocks on Frankfurt Avenue between Wakeling and Bridge Streets. The ages widely varied, with the youngest victim being 28 and the oldest 74. But each victim shared the same grim fate. They were all sexually assaulted before being stabbed to death. 
While it is yet to be confirmed, police records also indicated that most of these women were allegedly involved in prostitution. Many of them also had an extensive history of drug abuse and mental illness. All of the victims were seen leaving the bars with a person described to be a middle-aged white man with a round face wearing glasses and having a limp. A sketch of the suspect was released to which witnesses had all attested to as the person they had seen. The women were all found in various locations with some inside their apartments, one under a car, the other in a yard, and one near a fish market. And the killer was getting bolder each time as the brutality of the killings were observed to have increased in scale with each new victim. One of the latter women was even found stabbed more than 70 times. There were several theories regarding the identity of the slayer, but the strongest one said that the man would often pose as a counselor offering advice and help to his targets. A few potential victims met this kind of individual who fit the description, but they were lucky enough to have never left the bar with him. Throughout the string of murders, police had been working off a large amount of information, but there was never anything substantial enough to go by. But in 1990, after the murder of the eighth victim, Carol Dowd, authorities announced the arrest of Leonard Christopher. Christopher was a black man that worked at the fish market near the location of Dowd's murder. The most jarring contradiction to the narrative was the fact that the man didn't fit any witness descriptions. Moreover, there was no physical evidence of his involvement Yet Christopher was convicted and sentenced to life in prison based solely on the circumstantial evidence linking him to Dowd's murder. He was convicted on one count of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison on December 12, 1990. Months after his arrest, while he was still awaiting trial, a ninth woman was killed in the same way as the other eight. This should have cast further doubt on Christopher's involvement in Dowd's death or any of the other murders, Unfortunately, the court failed to look into it. Christopher eventually died from cancer behind bars, serving a sentence for a crime he most likely didn't commit. Meanwhile, the true killer was never found and is possibly still out there. Number 1. Georgia Jane Cruz, Monverde, Florida on April 8, 1980, in the town of Monverde, Florida, a community of just 400 residents at the time, 12-year-old Georgia Cruz was at home with her oldest brother, 16-year-old Tony. Their parents had gone out to catch catfish, and at around 6 p.m., Georgia decided to take a walk. When the fifth grader failed to return home later that evening, her family alerted the police about her disappearance. Concerned neighbors, authorities, and most of the townspeople immediately mobilized to help in the search. They scoured the abandoned outbacks, nearby lakes, and swampy areas, but to no avail. The girls' family did appreciate the Monteverdans coming out to help, but the sheer number of people going all out somehow compromised the effort. According to records, there were so many people going out that they probably had stomped and trampled down any possible evidence or clues that the police may have found. 
Two days had passed since she had vanished. With the family and community stressed, the sheriff's department received an eerie call from an unknown person who said, You know that 12-year-old girl you're looking for? She's dead. And then the line broke. Two similar phone calls were also made. One went to the missing girl's grandmother, and the other was received by the wife of Monverde's police marshal. Six days after those calls and about 25 miles away from her home, authorities then found George's body. She had been left in a wooded area of a park behind a convenience store. The victim was found with a single stab wound to the back. It's believed the knife went in deep and is the single cause of her death, as there were no other signs that she had been assaulted. Upon further investigation, authorities found no people or vehicles present in the area at the time of the kidnapping that didn't belong. Worse, the phone calls were never traced. Even the record of the call made to the police department was apparently lost. Speculations were running wild, even to this day, that George's kidnapper and killer may have been a resident and possibly an authority. It's been 40 years since George's death, and the police have not yet made any arrest. The Monverde community can only hope for someone to come forward with new information or confession to the crime. However, at this point, that's highly unlikely. So there were five terrifying and creepy small-town murder mysteries. While many places are safe, especially tightly-knit communities, the fact remains that cold-blooded murder can happen anytime and anywhere. These disturbing tales of small-town violence are reminders to all of us, no matter who we are, that we should always watch our backs. If you like this video, then please subscribe because every week we're putting out new mysterious videos for you to check out. And make sure to listen to the Scary Mysteries in Everytown podcast as well for more chilling stories. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you soon.